Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 15 on our discussion of Till We Have Faces. And tonight, we begin book two, the sequel to the book that Orwell writes uh, because of writing her first book, as she'll explain. So, um, before we start tonight, I was just about to start talking about that relationship, but let me pause for a second, because I did want to do an announcement. I was asked... Uh, to do one announcement here tonight, and that is to, to let folks know that New England Moot for 2024 is now open for registration. We're doing a special two-day New England Moot this year. We'll be up here in New Hampshire again, uh, back at uh, Studio Labs in Derry, New Hampshire, where we've had New England Moot now the last two years. Um, we are this year acting on a suggestion uh, put forward last year, which is that we should totally do more. New England mood. Um, uh, so we're going to be doing some fun extra activity in addition. Um, I don't know for sure exactly what's going to happen, but the leading suggestion that I had been hearing is people suggesting that we have, uh, in addition to a regular mood, we also have a spend a day that weekend in which we, um, we have like a Lord of the Rings movie marathon on the big, huge mega screen in the, in the studio and that sort of thing. Um, uh, so, um, anyway, we're, that, I don't know exactly what's going to be happening yet, but something is, something like that is going to be happening. Um, so we're going to be, uh, meeting both. So like the, the main moot will happen on the, uh, on the Saturday and, um, uh, the, um, uh, we're going to be having a sort of a follow-up session uh, on the on the Sunday uh, as well. So anyway, it's going to be uh, it's going to be great fun. Uh, really, uh, really hoping many people can come. We've had a, a great turnout at New England Mood the last few years, uh, so I'm hoping that lots of people will be able to make it again this year. Registration is open pretty early uh, in order to accommodate that. So for all of the details that are available on that, go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org. In our event section, you will see. Uh, the stuff on New England Moot should be live. So um, anyway, uh, I wanted to make sure to let everybody know about that. Now, um, uh, let's get back into Orwell's book. We have a lot uh, we have a lot to talk about if we're to get out of chapter 22 or chapter one uh, of book two. Um, so um, let's um, let's. Let's get into it. So first of all, let's just remember where she ended up. I think it's important. Uh, I read this at the end, right? This is her conclusion of her original book. Um, and I think it's important. This is her closing statement, right? Um, and I think it's important to recall some of these terms because a lot of this stuff is going to be, you know, a lot of this stuff as well as, of course, many of the things we've been observing and discussing for weeks are going to becoming in very relevant again. There's almost nothing that's going to happen in these last few chapters that is not tied into many, many things that we've already um, been talking about. So, um, uh, so let me just reread this. We didn't, I, I read it at the end of last time. We didn't talk about it that much. Um, so we'll, we'll maybe talk about it a little bit, but as I say, I want, I want to make sure to refresh all of this sort of vocabulary. The, the way in which she understands the conclusions that she draws from her experience. Yet at last, after infinite hindrances, I made my book, and here it stands. Now, you who read, judge between the gods and me. Um, remember that that was always 
um, she was the entire frame of her book from the beginning to the end, right? From the initial uh, opening paragraphs through to these closing paragraphs. She has always claimed the one thing that she didn't, the one thing she took for granted, kind of like she's always taken for granted the existence of the gods, like the, the idea that there are no gods is not something um, that she ever, um, that w- she was ever even considering. And of course, after hearing her story, we can kind of understand why. I mean, she totally met one, right? So um, uh, to, um, uh, to go on as if the gods didn't exist at all um, would have been a little bit much for her. But not only did she presume that the gods existed, she was presuming that she and the gods are on opposite sides, right? She and the gods are definitely enemies. Um, and so the only question is, on whose side are you going to judge? Who is right, the gods or her, right? The, the idea that she envisions herself as in this, like, either-or relationship with the gods, right? Uh, she does, honestly, hold out the possibility that she is wrong. And, of course, you'll remember she comes back to that at a number of times. In moments when she's describing herself acting badly, Remember when she even says things like, if it is for this that the gods hate me, you know, it is, if it is for this sin that they hate me, then it is a sin I have committed. Remember things like that, right? So there are moments like that when she can imagine being sort of decided against. She can imagine that perhaps we will judge and say, no, Orwell, we we're going to side with the gods against you. They're right and you're wrong. But the one thing... Uh, that her whole sort of system, right, um, does not seem to question is whether or not she and the gods are in fact against one another. That she is against the gods, she is 100% clear that the gods are against her, she does not doubt again. Um, Maybe they're right. Maybe they're justified in hating her. Um, but uh, but she doesn't even hold open the possibility. So again, I just would point that out about the framework here. They gave me nothing in the world to love but Psyche, and then took her from me. But that was not enough. They then brought me to her at such a place in time that it hung on my word whether she should continue in bliss or be cast out into misery. They would not tell me whether she was the bride of a god, or mad, or a brute's or villain's spoil. They would give no clear sign, though I begged for it. I had to guess. And because I guessed wrong, they punished me. What's worse, punished me through her. And even that was not enough. They have now sent out a lying story in which I was given no riddle to guess, but knew and saw that she was the god's bride, and of my own will destroyed her, and that for jealousy, as if I were another Redival. I say the gods deal very unrightly with us. For they will neither, which would be best of all, go away and leave us to live our own short days to ourselves, nor will they show themselves openly and tell us what they would have us do. For that too would be endurable. But to hint and hover, to draw near us in dreams and oracles, or in a waking vision that vanishes as soon as seen, to be dead silent when we question them, and then glide back and whisper words we cannot understand in our ears when we most wish to be free of them, and to show to one what they hide from another. What is all this but cat-and-mouse play, blind man's buff and mere jugglery? Why must holy places be dark places? 
Um, yeah, so Yero, of course, you're very right to remember all of the many signs that they gave, right? And I know one of the things that we, um, uh, one of the things that, you know, we have seen at many points, right, is uh, her own, um, refusal to accept I mean, th there's a there seems to be a fundamental irony right um, in Orwell's complaint on the one hand she makes it the whole thing entirely about herself right she makes it entirely about herself um, and I, you know, I, JJ exactly as you're saying you know, the lines like, uh, they punished me through her, right? Um, as you say, even now she highlights herself rather than Psyche. Yeah, absolutely. As if the horrible thing that happened to Psyche, right? Losing her bliss and being cast out in misery. Um, and then who knows what happened to her after that, right? As if all of that were merely Orwell's punishment, like only significant because it was Orwell's punishment, right? Um, the way in which she makes herself the absolute center of everything in her description of these things. I mean, notice even like, they brought me to her at such a place in time that it hung on my word, whether she should continue in bliss or be cast out into misery. No, it didn't. It was Psyche's decision. Yes, Orwell brought forth that mercenary army, right? Yes, she did horrible things um, to manipulate Psyche and almost compel Psyche into doing what she did, but she did not, in fact, compel her, right? Um, Psyche's own choice... Um, Psyche's own choice is... Uh, uh, is st st still matters, Right? It's it it is still Psyche's story, right? It's not just Orwell's story, in fact. And Mighty Felix, you're absolutely right. The gods didn't make her interfere. They brought me to her at such a place in time that it hung on my word. Whether no, it didn't. Again, like you could have just been like, well, you make your own choice, girl, right? Um, she could have. She absolutely could have done that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so on the one hand, as I say, so the, the irony is one of the ironies, among the ironies, right, is that on the one hand, she, as we have seen her doing consistently, makes it all about herself, right? And yet, at the same time, um, she is ignoring all of the these things that did, in fact, happen to her, right? All these things that, in fact, she did do the center of all of these things was in fact her own choice as we saw she chose not to, it isn't that they didn't um you know they would give no clear sign though i begged for it yes they did i had to guess no you chose to think of it that way right you guessed wrong you knew you were wrong um you had plenty of reason to know you were wrong but you didn't want to believe right so um she makes the things that are not about her about her, 
but the things that are her own actions and a consequence of her own actions, she sort of passes off as if they're not, right? That's the sort of the irony um, I, was, uh, I, was, I was pointing to. Um, yeah, um, but, um, but Jackie, you are also very right to point out um, uh, you were right to point out why must holy places be dark places? Uh, and Jackie says, bring a lantern in and find out. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, did you notice that connection along the way? Right. The darkness of the God and the darkness of, of Ungit's house. Right. Um, One of the consequences of that, one of the implications of that, I think, Jackie, um, she's asking the question, and on its own, it's a sensible question. Why must holy places be dark places? There's an honest question behind that, right? Why, why won't the gods speak clearly? You can say she was given clear signs, and, and, and she was, right? Definitely more than she lets on here, right? More than she allows in this closing statement, right? But her final description there, to hint and hover, to draw near us in dreams and oracles, or in a waking vision that vanishes as soon as seen, to be dead silent when we question them, and then glide back in and whisper words we cannot understand in our ears when we most wish to be free of them, and to show to one what they hide from another. What is this but cat and mouse play, blind man's buff, and mere jugglery? Why must holy places be dark places? Why do the gods deal with us like that? Why can't we just sit down face to face and have an honest conversation? Why can't they deal with us on if they're going to deal with us, if they won't leave us alone, why can't they just deal with us honestly and openly? Right? Again, it's it is not itself a bad question. And you're right. Sarah, that Orwell wants the gods to play by rational human reasoning, and we saw way back in chapter 5 the old priest of Ungit's response to that, right? Remember him kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> taking the fox to the cleaners in their debate, right? Um, but, Jackie, the connection that you're making between the darkness of holy places and the darkness of of Psyche's husband's bedroom, right? There is a, an important connection there, an important similarity there. Why, um, why must holy places be dark places? Well, why this, that is a very similar, it's almost the same question to the question that Orwell was asking Psyche. Why won't your husband show himself to you? Why can't you see him face to face? Why can you only see him in the dark? Right? Why can you only encounter him in the dark? And it's related to the question of... Um, uh, it's related to the question that Orwell was asking um, of Psyche. Right, like again, like why? Why would he do? He, you know, if he had nothing to hide, why would he? Why would he do that? Right. Um, 
but it seems that there is an answer to that. It's, it's also related to the question, why can't Orwell see the palace, right? Um, why does he choose to make the palace invisible to her? And yes, Jocelyn, I completely agree with you that from very early chapters of the book, from the first Greek myth that we ever hear the fox tell, retelling to Orwell when she was a child, that is the story of, of Anchises and Aphrodite, um, we get a glimpse of the fact that when a mortal is in the presence of a god who reveals himself fully, the mortal either does get toasted, right, or thinks he's gonna, which is how Anchises responds, right? Um, so, from the beginning, even, you know, the Greeks, even the fox, through the Greek myths that he knows, even though he doesn't accept them and doesn't believe in them, um, even the fox has a glimpse of the answer to this question, right? Even though it's not logical in the way that the fox wants everything to be, to be logical. Um, uh, Emily, yes, I think it's very clear that Orwell really could not see the house. Um, Psyche accepted that, remember? Um, Psyche realized that Orwell couldn't see it. And when she, she, she didn't assume that that would happen, she was surprised to find that Orwell couldn't see the house. But as soon as she discovered that Orwell couldn't see the house, remember, Psyche wasn't, like, shocked by that. It made sense to Psyche. She was sad. She was like, oh, no, like, I didn't realize that's what he was talking about. Oh, man, remember that scene? And, um, and, and she was like, you know, I, I will ask him and maybe he will make you able to see in time, right? She, she was, um, uh, her, her response was first confusion. But then when she realized, she was like, actually, yeah, that kind of tracks, right? It, 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 it sort of makes sense. Um, yeah. But um, anyway, what I was saying, even though the fox doesn't agree with it, even the fox had a sense, Jocelyn, as you were pointing out, of the answer to the question, why must holy places be dark places? Think of all of the explorations on the frontiers where the land of the gods and the land of mortals, right, where divine things and mortal things came into contact. And think of all of the things that happened there, right? Orwell going up the mountain, Orwell meeting Psyche. Psyche's story of entering into the house of the gods and her experience of that. Um, what happens when mortal things encounter the divine? And um, no matter what else one can say about it, the clear message that even Orwell herself felt was and certainly then finally had to confront when she met the god in person um, was you can't cross that boundary like it's nothing, right? Um, and this is clearly, this is clearly related to the answer to her question, why must holy places be dark places? Maybe, possibly, it's for our own good 
in a sense. And that brings me back to my first point. That is Orowal's absolute bedrock assumption that the gods are against her, that she and the gods are mutually at loggerheads. And all that remains is for them to, um, uh, for them to, that is us, the readers, to decide between her and the gods. Um, yes, Argent Paintbrush, you are right that in antiquity the gods dwelt on mountaintops almost always. This idea, that is the idea of the the distance, not just physical distance, between the divine realm and the human realm, um, but the, uh, like, ontological gap, right? Um, this is a, a very consistent idea. In ancient religions, you see it uh, very, very strongly um, in, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you, you, it even uh, appears, though in different ways, uh, in the New Testament as well. Um, Tomas asks, uh, against, uh, are the gods against her in particular or mankind in general? Well, her in particular, right, her case, but she is clearly, believes herself to be speaking on behalf of humanity, right? Um, on the one hand, she's arguing her own special case. On the other hand, she, she, she very clearly, she is very clearly generalizing here, right? Um, uh, notice how she's speaking in the first person plural in the end of that, right? To tell, you know, they tell us, they whisper in our ears, um, when we most wish to be free of them. She believes herself to be a spokesperson for humanity. Remember how she said in the, in the opening paragraphs, um, one of the only people, surely, who has ever dared actually to say this. So she believes herself to be speaking up for humanity who has always remained silent on this, right? Um, but, again, when we think about the answer to her question, why must holy places be dark places, I think we can begin to see a different um, paradigm here, right? And the paradigm is perhaps, um, perhaps they have a good reason. And perhaps that reason is out of mercy or even out of, in a sense, accommodation towards us. Maybe they're talking to us as they can talk to us. Um, because it's not as that that gap, that divide. The divide which Orwell felt so strongly opening up between herself and Psyche is a real divide. The divide between the mortal and the divine. Um, and uh, crossing it is not just as easy as all that. But anyway, let's keep going. I say, therefore, that there is no creature, toad, scorpion, or serpent so noxious to man as the gods. Let them answer my charge if they can. It may well be that, instead of answering, they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into beast, bird, or tree. But will not all the world then know, and the gods will know it knows, that this is because they have no answer. Um, let them answer my charge if they can. So the book ends not just calling for judgment. She does call for judgment, our judgment of her case, right? But she also issues an open invitation. Um, 
an open invitation to the gods to respond. Let them answer my charge if they can. Um, she doesn't believe they can or will, and therefore believes that the very lack of an answer um, would be, you know, a verification, right? A justification. Um, yes, the toads, the scorpion, the unchancy things that uh, uh, that Psyche had uh, had such a fondness for. Um, that's such a really fun thing. The noxious creatures. You see the relevance of that, right? Um, she cites them, toads, scorpions, and serpents, um, as examples of creatures who are noxious to man, right? Um, the gods are worse, but they're like the example, right, of creatures um, they're cited because they're creatures who are merely noxious to man. Scorpions don't do any good, right? Um, there's nothing. There is nothing beautiful or beneficial about a scorpion. It's just noxious to man. Um, but uh, Jackrabbit, as you're remembering, Psyche loved those creatures. They are capable of being loved. If you look at them from a different perspective. Um, they're not just noxious. There are things about toads and scorpions and serpents that are beautiful and useful. Um, if you can kind of get out of your own framework and see it, right? As Psyche could. And Orwell herself confessed that she made even those, uh, you know, ugly things beautiful when she paid attention to them. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Argent Paintbrush says, oh no, and Orowal fails to see uh, the things that are lovable about herself. Yes. Um, in the end, how noxious is she? And has she been? Right. Yeah. We're getting there. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, well, let's... Um, Let's keep going. Not many days have passed since I wrote those words, no answer. But I must unroll my book again. It would be better to rewrite it from the beginning, but I think there's no time for that. Weakness comes on me fast, and Arnhem shakes his head and tells me I must rest. They think I don't know they have sent a message to Darren. Remember, Darren is the second son of Trunia and Redival, who is her heir, right, and going to take over when she dies. Since I cannot mend the book, I must add to it. To leave it as it was would be to die perjured. I know so much more than I did about the woman who wrote it. What began the change was the very writing itself. Let no one lightly set about such a work. Memory, once waked, will play the tyrant. I found I must set down, for I was speaking as before judges and must not lie, passions and thoughts of my own which I had clean forgotten. The past which I wrote down was not the past I thought I had all these years been remembering. I did not even, when I had finished the book, see clearly many things that I see now. The change which the writing wrought in me, and of which I did not write, was only a beginning, only to prepare me for the god's surgery. They used my own pen to probe my wound. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, unrolling. Sorry, I, I must unroll my book again. It's a scroll. She wrote on a scroll, right? So she has to she has to unroll the book. Um, that's how you I open a scroll, right? Um, I love that little reference to like material culture, right? Um, they still called them called them books, right? Um, but to uh, to open a book is to assume a codex, right? A, a bound book like we think of books, right? Um, and that's not what she wrote. She wrote a scroll. And this, I think, uh, this is important um, in, in a sense. I, no, not just in a sense. I think this is important. Think about the impact of this. Um, if you want to open a book to the end, so say you have a, a bound book, right, that's full of blank pages and you've written in it, and so there's still blank pages at the end. If you want to um, open the book and start a new chapter, what do you do? Well, you could just kind of open to the, you know, you can just do the thing, right? You've got a codex and you're just like, okay, I'm going to like start here, right? Um, which in this case is Appendix B of the Return of the King, right? So you could just do that, right? No problem. With a scroll, you've written a scroll, which is wound to the beginning, like it would be polite. It's like not rewinding the VCR tape before you return it when you rent it back in 1987. Um, so, um, you know, you, you, you wind it to the beginning so that when anybody opens the scroll, it's the beginning of the book, right? Um, and um, you... Um, what, there, there might be some extra room at the end of that scroll, just like in, the, in our imagined codex, right? And you, um, uh, you want to write more? You want to write another chapter? What do you do? What do you do? How do you, how do you open to the end of your book in a scroll? You can sew more on, but no, but how do you get there? You have to roll all the way through it. Yeah, you unfurl the whole thing. So in order even just to get to the end of her book to write more, she you have to go through the whole thing again. Right? You don't have to you know, you you don't have to like page by page turn a codex to get to the end, right? But you do with a scroll. Have to unfurl the whole thing and scroll it through, right? Um Exactly. Fast forward versus chapter select. Yeah. Yeah. So this sense, um, I, I think, I, I think the, um, the, uh, scrolliness of her book, right. Um, it really emphasizes the fact she, she speaks of both of those experiences. That is, she speaks of the reliving of her past that she did while writing the book the first time. But then she also um, speaks of the change that, like, reading and reflecting upon it came. Um, notice when she says, I did not, even when I had finished the book, see clearly many things that I see now. Right? Um, 
the process of writing the book changed many things, drew many things to her attention that she had overlooked, that she had forgotten about, right? Um, reviewing it afterwards has helped her to see more things clearly. I like to think that you'll remember all of those times when we were looking at the things that Orwa was saying and we were pointing out the ironies, right? And her own lack of self-awareness. Um, those things were all being brought to her attention as she was writing. Um, but I think, again, what she's referring to when she says, even when I, had, I did not, even when I had finished the book, see clearly many things that I see now. Um, now she has seen many of the things that we saw as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I am... Um, this is not a very long book. I don't know... Um, I don't know the answer to the question. Could Orwell's book conveniently fit onto a single scroll? It depends on the size of the scroll. Yeah, as Arthur says, you can get the entire Torah onto a very large scroll, right? Now, that's a large and rather unwieldy scroll for personal use, right? Um, uh, and it does depend on the writing system as well, yeah. Um, she talks about writing in Greek. I think she's using the system that the fox developed, um, which is she's writing in the language of... No, she's writing in Greek. She's writing in Greek so that the, um, uh, the Greek people can read, right? Yeah, so, so she is writing in Greek. Um, which is not extremely compact. You're right, Arthur, of course, Hebrew is more compact than English. Um, the whole... <laughs> No vowels things does really pay off in the uh, in uh, uh, density of writing, um, but um, uh, but but of course Greek does. So Greek is uh, uh, not, I think, very much more compact than English. But um, anyway, uh, um, so uh, anyway, yeah. So she has had to not only reread. She not only like write, but reread the text as she has unrolled it. Uh, as she has unrolled her book again. Um, note how first... So I... I the, both of the elements of her relation of events that we um... Uh, that we noticed as we were reading them. That is both the brutality of her honesty, right? Um, in recalling all of these things, confessing all of these things, even the, you know, the, the sort of disgraceful fantasies that she had and, you know, like that whole, like, I imagine that I was dead, and at my funeral they were all weeping. They missed me then. Everybody appreciated me when I was dead, right? And all those kinds of things. Um, but um, uh, anyway, she. Um, but nevertheless, 
she, she did not have to say that. And if she were trying to wait her case, even if she were, um, there's a sense in which I'm not sure I buy her argument when she talks about, um, I was speaking as before judges and must not lie. That's true. You must not, but that doesn't mean you have to say everything, right? Some of those things, like what she fantasized about while she was waiting for Psyche, surely she didn't have to admit all of those things, right? So she acknowledges her honesty, but she tells us that there was even more behind that. Why? Why did she choose to do that? Why did she write down all of those things which really are not to her credit? All of the things that we were saying, all of the bad look, right, of Oro, all the things that made her look so horrible, um, especially during those Central Psyche chapters, um, she didn't have to say those things. Why did she say those things, right? And her answer is, memory once waked will play the tyrant. I found that I must set down passions and thoughts of my own, which I had clean forgotten. It is because, recalling it, she found herself reliving all these things. She wrote them down because, because they came back to her. Because she saw them clearly while she was doing this and felt that she had to confess them, that to withhold them would be to lie. And again, on the outside, like initially that doesn't seem necessary. That doesn't seem compelling to me, as I said, right? Like it's just because you need to be honest about the things that you say before the judge doesn't mean you're obligated to, you know, say absolutely everything that you can remember about what you thought. Um, but it's clear that she did feel that way. And why did she feel that way? Why? Because she discovered that the past she had all these years been remembering, that she thought she had been remembering, wasn't the real past. She had found, in short, that she had rewritten the past backwards in her own head. That as she thought over the years, and it's been decades now, right? It's been like 50 years at least since her parting with Psyche. Um, in those 50 years, she has rewritten the past in her head and convinced herself of that. And her discovery that the past that really happened, the past that she actually remembers when she gave memory its head, right? When she, um, uh, when she waked memory up. What she found was that what was there was not true, was not real, was not, um, uh, was not the actual past. And so for her to conceal it, for her to suppress these memories that were being brought back to her would have been a lie. A lie that she found suddenly herself to have been guilty of for decades. And that's why she didn't do it. Right? Um, yes, Jackie, it is very tempting, isn't it? To 
uh, connect that with the veiling of her face, right? What she is doing in those chapters, what she does so consistently throughout book one is to show us her face unveiled, right? To pull back the veil and conceal nothing about her thoughts and feelings. Once she did that, once she opened the door, she felt that that had, and it changed her. So she said, this is the first thing. The first thing that makes her open her, she, she can't leave the book as it stands. She says, because she would, to leave it as it is, to leave it as it was, would be to die perjured. Um, it's not true. So it's complicated, right? On the one hand, what she wrote was super honest. It's the opposite of perjury, right? I mean, she is being completely transparent with the court. So what is it? Where, wherein does the perjury lie? And the perjury lies in... so. She did not lie about what happened and what she thought and what she felt and why she did things, even to the extent of making herself look really, really bad. Um, she, you know, looking uh, like a completely self-obsessed narcissist, right? Um, but the conclusions that she... It's her closing statement that we just read that she can't let stand. Right. Um, remember, she. Not many days have passed since I wrote those words. No answer. Um, you know, she dares the gods to make a response, and doesn't believe that they can possibly make a satisfactory, or that they will deign to make a satisfactory answer to the charges that she has brought against them. That's what would be a lie because she says they're already answering I was being answered while I was writing the book itself part of the answer of the gods was in her own words and this very first realization that the memory of the that the past that she had held on to as the past she had rewritten it. Um, they had used her own pen to probe her wound. Her writing of the book had been the first part of their answer, and their answer is not a response in court. She shifts metaphors entirely. This is not, you know, the opening statement of the defense. Now, all of a sudden, she's in surgery. And the gods are holding the scalpel. And her own pen is the first, is the, the, the first instrument of their surgery, right? Probing the wound with her own pen. And she acknowledges that the writing wrought in her a change. Jackie, you had said that um, uh, 
you didn't find her closing statement very convincing. It sounded ragey, as you said, right? Um, and doesn't really... Um, you know, there are ways in which it kind of holds together, together but it, it's not um, not a very impressive performance as a closing statement, right? And I th- here she's pointing to why. Because by the time she wrote it, she herself had begun to lose the conviction of that. By the time she got to the end of the story, to writing the end of the story, um, she had already begun to be changed. It was only just the beginning, though. The god's surgery hadn't really yet begun. Um, she was only prepared for the god's surgery, right? So she's been, like, scrubbed and you know, shaved and the wound laid open, right? But the the actual operation hasn't happened yet, right? So the wound is lying there. Um, and that kind of, the vulnerability of that position, right? Of being on the surgical table with your body, like parts of your body pinned open to view uh, and to, you know, the, the uh, exploration of the surgeons and their... Um, and their instruments. Um, that is a very deep and uncomfortable kind of vulnerability. And think of how opposite, like how, well, let me just go with different, right? How very, very different that relationship is between the, I'm the prosecuting party and you're the defense party and we're facing each other across the courtroom, right? The dynamics are uh, very, very different. Kalahoros points out, and back then surgery had no anesthesia. Important to remember. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, we should, you should not, in thinking about this metaphor and what this metaphor means, like the picture that Orowal has in her mind when she makes this metaphor, we absolutely should not picture ourselves on the surgeon's table um, unconscious, right, and anesthetized. Um, and yes, Scott, even uh, e- I, she is certainly, she's no longer the accuser, she's the one being inspected. And again, that's, she expected opposition. But again, the, the relationship, the dynamic, completely different than the one that she has, uh, uh, that she's been suggesting, right? Um, okay. Here is what she described as the first Uh, the first blow, right? Uh, This, there's an envoy sent to them from the great king to the south who sounds like the emperor of Persia or something like that. I I don't know that it's necessarily Persia. It might be Media, right? It might be Babylon. I I don't know. Um, But some kind of eastern potentate whose empire is so vast that Gloam and Fars and all the rest of them could fit into part of his hunting park and not be noticed, right? Um, uh, anyway, uh, and who also, whose great men are eunuchs, right? Um, anyway, um, this emissary comes, um, and it's, uh, it turns out, of course, to be uh, Terran, the 
member of the King's Guard who is caught smooching Redival and uh, castrated, right, and sold as a slave. Um, and, uh, uh, and he, being made a eunuch, uh, right, uh, finds his way into this court, whatever court it is, Babylon, Persia, whatever, um, we don't know. And uh, because he's a eunuch, he has the opportunity for advancement and becomes a very great man. Um, uh, more powerful, of course, more wealthy and powerful than any of the royalty in, you know, Gloam or Fars or anywhere else. Um, I have no idea where we are in relationship to Alexander the Great, Ambrosius. I suspect earlier, but I, I really... I suspect earlier just because I don't hear any hint. Whenever they refer to the Greek lands, you'd think if it were post-Alexander, they'd talk about the Greek lands a little differently, right? Um, if uh, if Alexander and his army had already visited, right, I think uh, the, the people of the Kingdom of Gloam would have a different relationship to Greece already uh, than what they seem to have. So I, I suspect we're, we're pre-Alexander, but, um, uh, but as I say, I don't know, uh, I don't know how far back. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Ah, so far as I remember. One forgets the names of all these little countries. Yes, a pretty little girl. I took pity on her. She was lonely. Lonely, said I. Oh, yes, yes, very lonely. After the, after the other princess, the baby came. She used to say, first of all, Oroal loved me much. Then the fox came, and she loved me little. Then the baby came, and she loved me not at all. So she was lonely. I was sorry for her. Tee oh, it, I was a fine young fellow then. Half the girls in Gloam were in love with me. I led him back to our affairs of state. This was only the first stroke, a light one, the first snowflake of the winter I was entering. Regarded only because it tells us what's to come. I was by no means sure that Terran spoke truly. I am still, I am sure still, that Redival was false and a fool. And for her folly, the gods themselves cannot blame me. She had that from her father. But one thing was certain. I had never thought at all how it might be with her when I turned first to the fox and then to Psyche. For it had been somehow settled in my mind from the very beginning that I was the pitiable, pitiable and ill-used one. She had her gold curls, hadn't she? Yeah, exactly, uh, Yarrow. It's um, easy to forget, because even in her story, she hadn't told that part. She had just said how when she started to tell about the early days, all of a sudden all these memories came back. These memories of the time that she spent with Redival in the early days, before the fox, before Psyche. All the time that they'd spent playing together and, you know, finding tadpoles and uh, hiding from Bata together and all these other things, right? Um, and then the fox came, and then Psyche came, and the times with Redival stopped. And she... This moment... Um, she calls this the first snowflake of the winter, right? Um, regarded only because it tells us what's to come. Like the first snow, snow of the winter, often not, you know, the worst snow of the winter, usually not. Um, um, it's just the preamble, 
Right. It's just a warning of what's to come. So this is a mild lesson. This is a very simple preliminary surgery. Um, but um, what we see, and Scott, you're exactly right, the very first thing that gets probed by the, the god's scalpel is her self-centeredness. This first and least meaningful for Orawal instance of her self-centeredness. She's always hated Redival. Well, almost always. She might have said, I've always hated Redival, except that's changing the past backwards. She didn't always hate Redival. She loved Redival. She loved Redival until better companions came along. The fox was a better companion to her, and she loved the fox more. Psyche was a better companion, and she loved Psyche much more. But is not that hard on Redival? What, at that point, had Redival done? Right? And she, that is, Orowal, recognizes that it never even occurred to her that Redival could have been at all pitiable. Or was it all ill-used? She had been abandoned. Orwell had abandoned her, had turned away from her, um, ceased entirely to regard her. And yet, throughout that, it's not only that she overlooked Redival's loneliness, that she never looked at it from Redival's perspective, that she never realized that Redival might have cause of envy, right? Um, but it's that in the midst of that, Orwell still felt she herself to be the pitiable and ill-used one. Remember some of those very first things we read in chapter one, the very opening scene of her having her hair cut when her mother died, right? Um, emphasized the beautiful gold curls of Redival and the nasty, lank, thin brown hair of Orowal, right? And all of the ways in which, um, all of the ways in which Redival got all this positive attention. Everybody loved Redivals and were. Everyone loved her and was sad to see her, her beautiful golden curls being cut off, right? And nobody cared about Orwell. Um, even then, we can see that framework of Redival is the fortunate one. Redival is the blessed one. Redival has all the privileges, right? Um, Orwell was the downtrodden one. And if she found love at last, if she found happiness with the fox and with Psyche. You know, did she not deserve to have some of the blessing that Redival was just born to because of the way everyone fawned over her all the time? Not to mention the future that she had. As we saw the kind of growth of Orwell's, um 
understanding of her physical ugliness. And even more, as we began to see her processing what it meant for her life, what she was doomed to. And what she was doomed to was loneliness. Right? Loneliness. No one was ever going to marry her. No one would ever want to marry her because only foreign kings could marry her and none of them would want her. So she was doomed to be set aside, to be alone. Red of all would always get the attention and then eventually the husband, right? Um, yeah. Um, and of course, fire swans... Yeah, I, 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 as you say, she was abused, chronically abused, both emotionally and physically as a child. Yeah, yeah. Um, the scorn of her father, um, who was always bringing up her ugliness and throwing that back in her face, right, um, led her to envision a world in which she was always the pitiable and ill-used one. And almost trained her not to think of, to have empathy for the suffering of others. Um, and so this is the very first lesson, right? And we can see she is right to say that this is like the first snowflake of winter. This realization, this is a very gentle realization, right? Um, a very gentle one. Um, the thought that she might have not done right by Redival isn't going to keep her up at nights, right? Um, the fox, Psyche, Bardia, different matters, right? Very different matters. Um, by the way, this is just one of the ways. Um, one of the brilliant things about book two of this book is the way that just as Orwell describes her own transformation in her understanding of her past, it's, it is not just, she does not just reveal that the writing of book one showed her, transfer, rewrote the past backwards, right? What Lewis does is he creates a situation in which his book two rewrites book one backwards and transforms it. And it's freaking incredible what he accomplishes here. Can the gods uh, rewrite the past backwards? Lewis does it in this story. After reading this paragraph, if you go back and reread the first seven chapters of the book um, and pay attention to every reference to Redival, everything Redival does and says, um, you will you will find the character of Redival a completely different character. She is still, as Orwell says, she is still false and a fool. It doesn't justify everything she does. It doesn't make her into a wonderful character or a wonderful person in retrospect. But you will see Redival completely differently when you go back and reread book one having had this moment 
from book two. And this is just the first snowflake of winter, right? Um, okay. Um, yes, Cal Elros Bata is Redival's only friend by late childhood, as Orwell says. And that, too, will be transformed. Um, but, um, anyway, okay, let's keep going. This is only the first and the least painful of the realizations. But wait! First she has a dream. So back to my writing. And the continual labor of mind to which it put me began to overflow into my sleep. It was a labor of sifting and sorting, separating motive from motive and both from pretext, and this same sorting went on every night in my dreams, but in a changed fashion. I thought I had before me a huge, hopeless pile of seeds, wheat, barley, poppy, rye, millet, whatnot, and I must sort them out and make separate piles, each all of one kind. Why must I do it? I did not know. But infinite punishment would fall upon me if I rested a moment from my labor, or if, when all was done, a single seed were in the wrong pile. In waking life, a man would know the task impossible. The torment of the dream was that there it could conceivably be done. There was one chance in ten thousand of finishing the labor in time, and one in a hundred thousand of making no mistake. It was all but certain I should fail and be punished, but not certain. And so to it, searching, peering, picking up each seed between finger and thumb, and yet not always finger and thumb. For in some dreams, more madly still, I became a little ant, and the seeds were as big as millstones, and laboring with all my might till my six legs cracked, I carried them to their places, holding them in front of me as ants do, loads bigger than myself. Yarrow, you are not misremembering. Uh, since we've had the myth spoiler already, right, uh, we might as well recall that, so you'll remember in the Cupid and Psyche myth, after uh, Psyche is banished um, by Venus, Venus sets her to tasks, right? Uh, she sets a number. We talked about this. Is like one of those very common myths, right? Where an impossible task, a series of impossible tasks, uh, theoretically impossible tasks, is set uh, before a, 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 you know the person. And if she, um, in the uh, you know hundred thousandth chance that she actually accomplishes the impossible tasks, then she will be permitted to marry Venus's son, right? Um, and. Um, Yes, in the original myth, this task is one of the impossible tasks that is put before Psyche. She is given an enormous pile of mixed seeds like this, and she is assigned to separate them out. In, uh, and that she must uh, not only accomplish the task in, in a set amount of time, but that she must do so perfectly. If one seed is misplaced in the wrong pile, then she will be punished. Um, so that is, uh, that is one of the tasks, which in the myth, Psyche is set by Venus uh, before that she must accomplish before she can marry Cupid. Now, um, think about... We'll get to the others, Yero. Stay tuned. You'll notice them. Um, 
What, what's happening here? See what Lewis is doing? In Orwell's experience, what is this dream? Do you see this? What is this dream? She, she's talking about writing a book. And the continual labor of mind to which it put me, that is the writing of her book, began to overflow into my sleep. Remember, by the way, the, um, that scene we read last time about when she was queening it and uh, how sometimes the dam would break and, you know, the, the, the sound of the chains in the well, it would, she wouldn't be able to keep them in even with the stone walls. And, and remember the only cure for that was work and work and work to go to the pillow room and continue to work and her description of her torment Right, her eyes burning, her feet like ice, right? All those, remember that? Remember that scene? Um, this is parallel to that, right? Um, that is the way in which her, her memories and her experience would translate over into her sleeping life. And there, her only escape was to avoid sleep. And when she did, avoid sleep, avoid thinking about Psyche, avoid uh, try to keep Orwal locked up, imprisoned in her womb which is also a tomb right um, when she did that in order to, you know, the only way she could accomplish that is to not sleep, right, and is to go off and do her queen work, right um, notice how she describes this, right? The continual labor of mind to which her book set her overflowed into her sleep. When she, the very experience that she has, she doesn't, she doesn't use this metaphor here. Um, she hasn't reversed the metaphor of the dam, right? The dam, the prison. She doesn't speak of this as letting Orwell out, right? But it's clear when she's speaking, um, when she's writing here in book two, that um, that's one of the things that the book has done, right? It has removed the dam. Um, and part of the process that has changed her in writing the book is to let Orowal, because she's doing more than just letting Orowal out, right? When the dam broke and she would be weeping and hearing the weeping of Psyche and going crazy, like, that was not a positive experience, right? Um, but when guided by memory, under the, you know, scalpel of the divine surgeons, when she goes back to write her book, she doesn't just release the dams and let the emotional flood come through and drown her. She, she sifts, she sorts, she works through the entire thing. She confronts and faces every detail, not just the raw facts that she was trying to suppress, all of the things that she had suppressed, right? And she works through it all. And those things now, Whereas the, uh, the breaking of the dam would lead to her trying to avoid that. And the state 
of punishment. Kind of like maybe something like the eternal punishment that would await anybody who was set a random task like this and got it wrong or, or screwed it up or didn't get it done in time, right? Might be something like the punishment that she inflicted on herself in her, um, uh, in her, uh, uh, in her pillar room. Um, uh, yes, Maureen, I love that too. In the dream there, it could be done. The impossible becomes possible. She imagines the dream, right? Within the dream, she imagines she is, she's taken up to this like meta level, right? In her writing, she is re-experiencing and working through and sifting through her own thoughts and motives separating motive from motive and both from pretext. What actually happened? What did I actually experience? Right? What were, what motives am I now seeing that I can't really hide anymore now that I've seen them? Right? Through that process of writing her book, um, she is in fact accomplishing this impossible task. It had been to her utterly impossible. The queen who set out on her progress with her, you know, young courtiers, as she described at the end of book one, before she'd started writing her book, that queen um, would have would not have been able to separate motive from motive and both from pretext any more than somebody would successfully and perfectly and in a timely fashion be able to separate this huge pile of seeds. It would be just as impossible a task. But in her dream, it could conceivably be done. And her vision of herself as an ant shows, in a sense, how it can be done. What has memory done to her? What have the gods in their operation on her done as she has written her book? Um, they have reduced her, as it were, to an ant. The task is not really possible for a human, right? Or certainly uh, inconceivably difficult, right? For exactly the reason that she describes, because to pick up these tiny little seeds, like poppy seeds, and I mean, these are tiny, tiny little seeds, right? Um, to pick up a single poppy seed out of the pile and put it only on the pile of poppy seeds, um, the reason this task is so impossible is that our, you know, our hands are big and clumsy. We can't handle the seeds, right? But an ant now, an ant, um, uh, an ant could do it because to the ant, the seeds are huge, as big as millstones, loads bigger than yourself. And that, too, is the experience that she has had in writing the story and in being forced to reread 
this story as well, right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. For an ant, it's like sorting golf balls from basketballs. Exactly, exactly. Or, you know, really, really, I mean, we don't have balls quite as large as these seeds apparently are to an ant. But, um, um, but yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, um, it's very possible for an ant to do. And so notice she, but that doesn't make it fun or easy to do. And she describes the labor back to where she started, the continual labor of mind to which it put me. It was a labor of sifting and sorting. And she describes I became a little ant, and the seeds were as big as millstones, and laboring with all my might till my six legs cracked, I carried them to their places. It's painful. It's hard to do. But she is, in fact, enabled to do it in the only way that it could be done um, as an ant. Um... Sarah, I agree. The um, uh, the word labor does seem to me a very conspicuous one. It was a the continual labor of mind, right? Um, she was pregnant with book. She was with book, right? As a woman is with child. Um, she is experiencing mental labor in more than one sense. And yes, Sarah, you're absolutely right to remember. Psyche was not actually her child, right? Um, but this book is. She, this experience, this experience of her labor in bringing forth not just the book, but the results of the book. We should remember that, placing that in parallel to her old fancy. Uh, her old fantasy, really, about imagining that she had given birth to Psyche, right? Awesome, Maureen. Yes, Maureen. <laughs> it could conceivably be done. Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, there, are, there are definitely some um, pregnancy jokes sprinkled in through here. Honestly, and I know you're not going to like this one, even the reference to seed. Kind of on point as well. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yes. Nice. Jackrabbit is thinking of the ant holding the huge seeds in front of them, in front of me as ants do, right? Like a like a a, a woman carrying her baby, right, in front of her. Um, yeah, carrying a big round weight. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I think he he's very much playing with that. Um, yeah. Okay. Now. Oh, man. 
Okay, I got less far than I even I expected. Let's at least set the stage for her conversation with Ansett, even if we don't get very far into it. Um, the real blow comes with Bardia's death, right? She wonders, she keeps muttering to herself where Bardia is, and is he going to slug a bed all his life, right? And then Arnim, Arnim gently clues her into the fact that he is in fact in danger and he believes that Bardia might be failing uh, and about to die. Um, uh, Arnim was an old and trusted counselor by now. So her first impulse, of course, is to run right over there to see him. He laid his hand on my arm. Queen, he said gently and very gravely, it would make him less likely to recover if you now went to him. Do I carry such an infection about me, said I? Is there death in my aspect even through a veil? Bardia is your most loyal and most loving subject, said Arnhem. To see you would call up all his powers, perhaps crack them. He'd rouse himself to his duty and courtesy. A hundred affairs of state on which he meant to speak to you would crowd into his mind. He'd rack his brains to remember things he has forgotten for these last nine days. It might kill him. Leave him to drowse and dream. It's his best chance now. It was as bitter a truth as I'd ever tasted, but I drank it. Would I not have crouched silent in my own dungeons as long as Arnhem bade me if it would add one featherweight to Bardia's chance of life? Three days I bore it, I, the old fool with hanging dugs and shriveled flanks. On the fourth, I said, I can bear it no longer. On the fifth, Arnhem came to me, himself weeping, and I knew his tidings without words. And this is a strange folly, that what seemed to me worst of all was that Bardia had died without ever hearing what it would have shamed him to hear. It seemed to me that all would be bearable if, once only, I could have gone to him and whispered in his ear, Bardia, I loved you. Yes, um, you are right to... Uh, several of you are connecting the labor of the ant in her herself as an ant in her dreams with Bardia's ceaseless cracking labor. Is, is that, that word cracked, right? The cracking the six legs, Sphinx, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Mary says, girl, what do you think would have happened if you told him that? She knows, right? Mary, she just said it. Um, what seemed to me worst of all was that Bardia had died without ever hearing what it would have shamed him to hear. Um, yes, it is very sad. It's very sad, right? It seemed to me that all would be bearable. What does she mean by that? Bearable for whom? For herself. Not for him, for herself, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What is burning her? So Arnhem, for reasons that he, I don't think Arnhem suspects that the queen has been in love with Bardia for 50 years. Um, uh, probably, probably Arnhem doesn't guess that. Um, but... Um, 
Yeah. Oh, hang on, Jocelyn. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, let me just finish this first. Um, Arnim doesn't suspect it, but his advice is surely more correct than he knows. Had the queen, in fact, gone to see Bardia, she probably would have told him. She's almost admitting that, right? Um, and would that have done harm? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, but let's go to her side comment, which is so jarring, right? Three days I bore it. I, the old fool with hanging dugs and shriveled flanks. Um, A, why is she talking about this at all? And B, why is she talking about this like that? Why is she talking about her body? Right? Her hanging dugs are her breasts. Um, you know, her breast is a very old woman. And her shriveled flanks, she's talking about what? Like her sides and hips. She's talking about, in other words, she, she is talking about like the sexually desirable parts of woman's figure. And she's speaking very scathingly of her own. Why? Why does she bring this up again? And why does she, like, why is she just so dismissive of herself um, uh, in this way? Um, Jocelyn, you're absolutely right because of the male gaze. Uh, this is what men, um, uh, this is what men imagine. No, I, so Jocelyn, I mean, to some extent. For a second, I'm not saying you're wrong, necessarily, and it's an interesting question. Forget Lewis for a second. Forget Lewis and think about Orwell. Um, think about Orwell and the character, all the things that she has said, her attitude, her, the, 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 the other, all of the other themes, all of the ways in which we've been prepared about this, right? Um, Think about the importance that the idea of her virginity has been in various ways, both because it means her loneliness, also um, because it meant her disconnection, um, her envy. She was clearly envious of Psyche. She was bothered by Psyche having a husband and not being a virgin, right? Um, uh, is it an allusion to Elliot's The Wasteland? <sighs> so I'm resistant. Let me tell you why I'm resistant to going there. Um, there have been several things. Several of you have been quoting The Wasteland at various points. And I don't think that you're wrong. Um, all I would say is that the relationship between Lewis and Elliot and between Lewis's work and Elliot's work is complicated and too much to go into here. Um, I am certainly not comfortable just saying he's making an illusion. Like, yeah, he is. But I, um, anyway, it's too much. It's too much. It's too, that's like a whole class by itself, right? Um, I, you could easily do. Yeah. I think I could easily do a semester class on the wasteland until we have faces. Just the two of them. 
looking at each separately and comparing the two together and thinking about um, thinking about the two. Um, I'd probably bring Elliot's later work, The Four Quartets, into it also. Um, yeah, that's like a whole course, <laughs> like a whole semester course on that. Um, we don't we, we don't have time. We don't have time for that. Um, and I don't want to. It's going to mischaracterize and oversimplify anything, any kind of connection I would make. So I, I will I will I will only say. Um, do I believe that there are connections here? Yes. Do I believe that Lewis is in some way engaging with the wasteland? Yes. I do not believe he's merely alluding to it simply. He's just drawing upon it. Like he's just invoking it um, kind of vaguely or, um, you know, he just like wants us to remember Elliot here. I think he's, um, uh, you know, Correcting, critiquing, examining, uh, there's so much. Um, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyhow, yeah. So um, I, it's not that there's nothing there, it's that there's too much there to talk about. So anyway, anyway, okay. Um, again, so forget Lewis, forget Elliot, Orwell. Think about how this connects to, and remember also, especially in the second half of book one, in the post-psyche part of book one, the references to her virginity, all of the pregnancy and sexualization of her body, uh, imagery and metaphor that have come up, many of them have been directly or indirectly connected with Bardia and her relationship with Bardia, right? Remember, we talked about her, her feeling, her comparing her experience of fighting in her first battle and killing her first man as comparing it to losing her, a wife losing her virginity, right? And that was the thing that she shared with Bardia, right? The intimacy between Bardia and Orwell was focused on combat. Right, he trained her. She was his pupil. They were bonded together, and that's the bond that they continued to share throughout their life for the next five decades. Right, they were battle companions together. They went to war together. They had a relationship that was, in its way, as intimate as the relationship between him and his wife. And remember that the juxtaposition between these two things, the her initiation into the life of the soldier and the warrior, that life that she shared with Bardia, which is like the initiation into the marriage relationship, the sexual relationship, when a wife loses her virginity. Um, remember how that got immediately juxtaposed with Ansit having another baby, as on that very same evening when Bardia comes home, he is taken off because, you know, he begs off the feast because he, um, because Ansett's in labor and having a baby, right? Um, so again, like, these things are tied really closely together. Um, and then, of course, you'll remember we had the even more uncomfortable stuff about how 
her womb, you know, her her mind was like a womb, which was like a a, a grave or a tomb, um, right? In which Orwal was being, um, uh, you know, she was unpregnant with Orwal, um, and uh, and yes, there was also somebody also had mentioned um, uh, th- her reference to the fact that one of the things that fed the mythology about her veil was the fact that since she was a virgin um, and had never been pregnant, she says she kept her figure uh, far more than most of the women of Gloam did. Um, And um, uh, so she has never been beautiful. And her and she admitted that if you couldn't see her face, which is what is most ugly about her, apparently, um, when you couldn't see her face, her figure was tolerable. Like it wasn't, she didn't have a hideous figure. So her figure, her breasts, her flanks, right? What she's talking about there and that aside were like the sexiest thing about her. They were the most pleasing part of her. The thing that was that brought her closest um, to um, you know, like the kind of love and acceptance that she always felt locked away from because of her ugliness, right? Um, her birth, her rank and her ugliness. And yes, Maureen, you are right to remember that her big battle scene that she's famous for was only to save Bardia. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, and yes, yes, Sharon, you're right that her reference to her body is also recognizing the hopelessness passing into old age when sexual potential wanes, but romantic feelings have not lessened. Yes. And that, I think, is what she's doing here. That's why she brings this up. That's why she calls herself an old fool. She is speaking scathingly. She, she, the reference to hanging dugs and shriveled flanks is not, I think, you know, Lewis trying to find a way to describe, you know, the body of an elderly woman and just coming out with these. This is Orwell herself speaking scathingly. She is speaking bitingly on purpose of herself. She is mocking herself. Mocking herself for moping around like an old fool in love. As if she were still a teenage girl pining for a man she couldn't have. When, by contrast, she is very much not a teenage girl. Her body is so far beyond sexual, you know, that kind of, like, marital fulfillment, right? The kind of theoretical, um, you know, happy sexual union that, Psyche apparently had, you know, that Bardia and Ansett had. Um, uh, she is mocking herself. Mocking how she is finding herself ridiculous. Bearing this love and mooning about for the man, you know, just under the circumstances, right? She's mocking her, bitterly mocking herself. And that's supposed to be the, um, the, uh, the edge in her words there, I think. Um, yes, it, she does have a great deal of self-hatred. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
um, she is, and she is hating herself in part for what she confesses in the last sentence, that it seems to her that it all would be bearable if once only she could have gone to him and whispered in his ear, Bardia, I loved you. Why should she do that? What would be accomplished? What possible good could come of it? Right? Other than in some way the relief of her own feelings. Right? Um, yeah. Um, it would be interesting to hear Bardia's perspective on all of this, but we never do. Um, no... I was going to start the ANSIT conversation, but there's no point in beginning it five minutes after we're supposed to end class. Um, Mary says she feels like Bardia knew. I wonder. I wonder. I don't... Um, I don't... I would not be at all surprised if Barty had never thought about it or believe it. Sharon says Bardia's wife knew, right? Yeah, to some extent, at least, to some extent. And Jocelyn, you're right. Such a confession would only be good for her feelings. A grown-up would keep her mouth shut. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And again, notice again, notice again that... Um, uh, She's doing it again. The honesty, right? The confessing things that she doesn't have to confess. The surgeon is still at work. The scalpel is still probing, even here. Um, that's the process that she's describing. Um, this is... She begins by saying how at, in that moment of grief and despair she felt like would be the one thing that would make it bearable to be able finally after decades and decades to come out into the open with it and to say it even though she acknowledges in confessing it that she knows it would shame him to hear it but that confession that feeling that she admits to having had um, while she was waiting to see if he would recover is the very first step. It's the first, once again, the patient is being laid open on the table, right? Um, and the, the gods have a much more painful surgery to come. Um, she admitted before, she realized she told us at the beginning of book two how she came to realize how unself-aware she had been and how much more her self-awareness um, uh, had grown as she remembered and as she reread what she remembered. Um, and um, uh But, um, but again, this is only the initial probing. 
she's still only just, you know, getting prepped for the surgery. The surgery, as she's going to describe it, is yet to come. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> footnote. Arthur, I, I understand. Um, uh, I understand about uh, uh, divine surgeons um, and the bitter reality of how many. Uh, I, I remember my, uh, my, my, my wife once telling me the joke. Uh, what's the difference between a, a god and a surgeon? Uh, God doesn't think he's a surgeon, right? Um, but um, anyway, yeah, I, I I know. Again, I'm the I'm the husband of a pediatrician, so I am I am I am very aware of the whole uh, 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 divine surgeon issue <laughs> in the medical world. Um, but um, uh, but uh, uh, as I, I I I'm pretty sure that like pediatricians and surgeons are pretty much the extreme ends of that particular spectrum. Um, but um, I've heard the pediatrician jokes from surgeons as well. Um, but um, anyway, uh, but nevertheless, uh, we, we, we still must uh, uh, deal with this metaphor, which is an important metaphor, right? Uh, it's a metaphor about gods doing surgery, not about surgeons being gods. So we, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, let's um, next time um, I want to see we'll see this uh, today we were dealing a lot with the transition into book two and kind of talking about the setup of book two really important um, and I'm going to stop apologizing not only for going slowly but for slowing down in these last four chapters next time um, uh, uh, next time my goal We'll be we'll we'll do the ANSET conversation, and then I hope that we will, uh, in addition, move on to the scene of the festival in the House of Onget, um, and the different kinds of contemplations that Orwal has there. Okay, um, so that's that's what we'll talk about. We'll see if we can get through both of those next time. Um, uh, and then there will be more dreams and things. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. All right. So that's the plan. For, so that means uh, the answer conversation, of course, is the rest of uh, the first chapter of book two, um, chapter one or chapter 22, depending on, on how your book uh, uh, numbers things. I think it's 22, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> Might have forgotten already. Um, but um, uh, the uh, the second the, the the second scene the the is the is the first part of uh, of chapter two of book two, and yes that is correct no class next week so I won't be so in real time um, for those of you who are attending live I won't be here next week I shall be in Australia uh, next Wednesday um, which will be uh, which will be a lot of fun um, so um, uh, so sorry uh, no class next week but I should be back uh, for the week after that. Um, uh, I am hoping I'll have some other things going on that week when I get home, but I think I'll be able to do class as normal. So we will, uh, 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 we'll see, we'll see, we'll see how we do. But in any case, uh, so Australia next week and then, uh, and then back for the ANSIC conversation. That's another reason why I didn't want to do the first slide of the ANSIC conversation tonight and then wait for two weeks to continue. So, all right. 
Thanks very much, everybody. I will see you guys soon. Bye now.